Hey, grown-ups! We are so incredibly grateful to you for listening to Story Pirates. Season 6 was really, really fun to make, and we're so excited for Season 7 right around the corner. To help us make the Story Pirates podcast the best it can be, we've created a short survey for our listeners, and we'd really, really appreciate it if you could take a few minutes to fill it out. You'll be able to tell us what you like about the Story Pirates podcast and what you'd like to see us do in the future. To fill it out, just go to realm.fm slash kids. That's realm, spelled R-E-A-L-M, dot F-M slash kids. And as a thank you, everyone who fills it out can enter to win a prize pack from a whole bunch of different kids' podcasts, including Story Pirates! Pretty cool. Again, that website is realm.fm slash kids. Thank you. Now back to the show. Hey, grownups. If you're a fan of comedy, there's a brand new podcast from our friend Justin Bartha that I wanted to tell you about. You may remember Justin from episode seven this season. He's the treasure hunter at the Met. And as you heard a seriously funny actor. Justin's show is called King of the Egg Cream. And in addition to Justin, it has just the most incredible cast. Again, this show's just for grownups and probably older kids. Grownups, you can take a listen yourself and see what you think. But if you're a fan of hilarious stuff and well-told stories, you will probably like King of the Egg Cream. Here's a taste. This egg cream is delicious. I wish the chocolate syrup inside wasn't so expensive. If you'd like to save some shekels and have some fun at the same time, make sure you tune in to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to the show. Hey, listeners, and especially grown-up listeners, Lee here. As you may know, Story Pirates is executive producing a brand new podcast for grown-ups who believe in arts education. It's called Arts Educators Save the World. A few months ago, we shared the first episode, which featured our friends Lin-Manuel Miranda and Bobby Lopez. If you missed that, just scroll back and check it out. And today, I wanted to share with you another episode from later in the season that features the incredible actor and comedian Cecily Strong, who you probably know from playing Patty the Glassblower earlier this season on the Story Pirates podcast. Oh yeah, she's also on something called Saturday Night Live. Arts Educators Save the World is a show about conversations between incredible artists like Cecily with the arts educators who helped mold them. If you like the show, you can find it wherever you listen to podcasts by searching for Arts Educators Save the World. And while you're there, we'll hope you'll consider subscribing and leaving a review to help more people find the show. We'll be back later in the week with a new episode of the Story Pirates podcast. But in the meantime, please enjoy this episode of Arts Educators Save the World. All the things that I always loved about acting and why I ever wanted to do it was all the things in the classroom as opposed to the business things. That feeling that we got in that classroom where Mary Lou would give us something and it would finally click, that you've had an effect on somebody or that you've understood this word in a new way, all the surprises, the discoveries. 
those are more exciting than anything else. And those are what I would even call a success. This is Arts Educators Save the World, where successful artists and their mentors talk about how arts education transformed their lives. Halverson, and I'm here with my co-host and superhero sidekick, Alec Lev. And for our returning listeners, welcome back. For those of you newcomers who saw that the fabulous Cecily Strong was going to be a guest on this new podcast and decided to give us a try, thank you. We're excited you are here. And as an introduction to what this show is, I'm going to play for you part of a talk I had with Cecily and her mentor, Mary Lou, before we started the actual interview. Roll the tape. I am a lifelong arts educator. I'm a professor and department chair at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where I teach about arts education. And I've spent my whole career studying how people learn in and through the arts I recently wrote a book called How the Arts Can Save Education, which is about how arts practices should change how we do teaching and learning at scale. I was getting frustrated with how little public attention those ideas were getting. And so I thought a way to bring greater public attention was to start talking with successful artists from across all media. So we've had ceramicists and visual artists and actors and writers talk with the person who transformed their educational life and made them a more productive artist as a way to bring more attention in a public sphere to the value of arts education and art making. So here we are. And now, on with the show. Welcome to this week's episode of Arts Educators Save the World. I am so thrilled that we have on the podcast today someone who I have fangirled for a long time. She has just finished a run at the Mark Taper Forum in Los Angeles of Jane Wagner's The Search for Signs of Intelligent Life in the Universe. She is a cast member on Saturday Night Live since 2012, which I'm sure means everyone listening has their favorite characters Mine is probably, girl, you wish you hadn't started a conversation with at a party. She hosted the White House Correspondence Dinner in 2015, which is a super dope item on a resume, I think. Uh, she was in my favorite quarantine binge show, Schmigadoon. And she got her start at the Second City Chicago, which is my artistic home as well. Cecily, thank you so much, Cecily Strong, for joining us today. Hi, thank you for having me. Your first task is to take your guest hat off and put your host hat on. I would like you to introduce the other guest who we have on our podcast today. Yes, well, I'm so happy to introduce my favorite teacher. I think the most important thing to know is that we share a birthday. <laughs> I found that out because my first day in her class, she said, out of nowhere, February 8th is a good day for a birthday. And I went, what? <laughs> so that's how I met her. Mary Lou Rosado, she was in the first 
Juilliard, the big Juilliard class. So she's got her own training stories as well, I'm sure. She's been in movies and TV. I got to see her on Broadway in, oh my God, Once Upon a Mattress, which I loved. I saw her do The Visit. That was the first show I teched on at CalArts. She is the greatest Shakespeare teacher on earth and... I'm willing to put money on that. <laughs> Mary Lou Rosado. Jeez, oh, that really is overwhelming. <laughs> uh, gosh, uh, what, how old were you when you saw Once Upon a Mattress? I think I was 13. Really? Yeah, yeah, it was, I was in junior high. I wish I had known you when you were 13. If you had come backstage, I would have put my hat on your head. A lot of little <laughs> girls used to come back to visit, uh, you know, the backstage area one way or another. They got back there and I would immediately put my, I had this huge headdress and I would just put it on their head so they could feel like they were queen for a moment, you know. <laughs> and I would always take their pictures and, you know. So there's pictures floating around of those little girls. Uncle Ed. Yeah, I'm glad. Should have, should have let me backstage, yeah. I know. <laughs> How did you figure out that the woman that you saw in Once Upon a Mattress was your acting teacher? I loved the show, so I bought the CD. You remember those CDs? And I, I listened to it all the time. I really loved the show. So I heard her voice forever. And I don't remember the exact moment putting it together because it wasn't when I first met you that I put it together. I think it took the month or so. And then I realized, wait a minute, you're on that CD. I know that voice. There was a whole little generation of people who listened to Once Upon a Mattress. They're older now and it's fallen away. <laughs> they don't find it anymore. But I remember there was sort of a, a secret bunch of people that knew that I was the queen in Once Upon a Mattress. And they wouldn't let me know about it. It was sort of like a, they just knew it on their own. But that's funny. And, and the reason that Cecily came to the show is her uncle, Ed, was one of the producers on the show. And so that was a big deal. I mean, we sort of had that little triumvirate there. You've already gone there a little bit, but one of the ways that I've found delightful to get folks talking is for each of you to tell the story of the first time that you remember working together, even if it's not the same story. This is an early version of that, but I'm wondering if we can jump ahead to when you had the beginnings of a student-mentor relationship, and if you both could tell the story of the first time you saw each other in that way. <laughs> so I, I think the first time I worked with you, when I was on crew, we did the visit. But that's probably harder to remember because I was doing wardrobe or something, which wasn't my passion necessarily. But then I, um, my second year is your second year at CalArts. Did I even mention CalArts? Mary, I, I went to CalArts and got my BFA in theater. Mm -hmm. And Mary Lou was a long time. Did you run the program there at some point? I ended up being co-head of the BFA department before I left. Yes. In 2015. I did that about eight years. But before then, I was just on the faculty. <laughs> just on the and faculty. And I was there just on the faculty. Taught our second year. And Mary Lou was, I feel like it's almost my biggest claim to fame at CalArts, I think, was that I knew Mary Lou liked me and everybody <laughs> liked Mary Lou. So it was sort of, that was my big brag thing. Yeah. You know, it was kind of like, oh, yeah, I know. We're, well, we're pretty close. Don't worry, everyone. <laughs> and it was a big deal to 
take her class our second year, we got to study Shakespeare with the greatest Shakespeare teacher of all time. And uh, yes, (laughs) I think all of us, no matter what we ended up doing in life, have a much better understanding of Shakespeare than most people. It's exciting still to get to talk about it and give away little tips that we went through in your class or fun exercises we did. One of my earlier memories was um, seeing you in that class, doing some of those exercises with you and watching as you sort of just took them over. I I, I could tell. I thought, oh, my gosh, I'm not sure what I can teach her, (laughs) except that I knew that all I needed to do was to give you things so that you would have more and more experience. That was one of the things that I knew because that's what expands an actor is getting the chance to do more things that just expand their experience and and internally expand their horizons emotionally and and everything else you know i do remember you when we were doing the visit you were already on my radar <laughs> and something i didn't remember somebody gave me oh it was, it was cayenne who gave me a picture and I realized that it was a picture of the Goldoni that I had directed, that little Goldoni play. And you had a little sort of character. In the fan. Yes. Il Ventaglio, right? Right. Yes. Which I sort of invented that character. I wanted you in the play. Yes. I wanted you around. It's true. <laughs> you know, you took that all the way down the football field. That character was so sexy and funny and just over the top. She was always coming out of someone's bedroom. That's right. It was a funny little character. Just this maid with two lines. Yes, Mary Lou gave me a real role out of a maid with two lines. Up to something in some bedroom with someone. (laughs) I want to hear more about the Shakespeare teaching. And I'm wondering, Cecily, because you've mentioned now several times that in particular, it's Mary Lou's teaching of Shakespeare that's so special. Can you say a little more about why or what it is about Shakespeare, what it is about her teaching of it that lifts it up? Yes, I can certainly try. Shakespeare is kind of a daunting task, especially we're all 18, 19 years old, and it's language that we're not familiar with. And so I don't even know how you'd begin to approach teaching Shakespeare to a bunch of 19-year-olds. But she really broke everything down. And a couple things that really have always stuck with me. I remember studying sonnets with Mary Lou. And she would say, look at the first word and the last word of the sentence. That's what the sonnet is about. And you would read down. And it was like, oh, that is. How interesting. I wish I had one in front of me so I could show you. But you can look at the sonnets and do that. And then... I remember just talking about tips to how something is discovered or performed inside the text of Shakespeare, and specifically because of the iambic pentameter. I feel like, Mary Lou, didn't you, did you ever do like a limp to sort of explain the I am? (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) I remember the feminine and the masculine ending, I think it was, but it was, you know, but then there was the da-da-da-da-da not the ending meant there was something being discovered in that moment or a a breath that you'd take. Yeah, that's right. Little things like that. And I think just the way I now approach all texts from sketch comedy, fart jokes to Shakespeare to Jane Wagner, it makes you really respect the writing so much more. 
that's definitely from studying Shakespeare and seeing what's written in the words. What action can we take? Are there breaths in text where we're discovering something? What I've always believed about Shakespeare is, is that it is accessible if you present it to the actor, the students, with your own enthusiasm. I, I love Shakespeare. I didn't know Shakespeare when I started out, but I knew that you can convey what is in Shakespeare if you understand what you're doing. And so I would try to make sure that the class was always sure-footed in their approach. So many actors don't like Shakespeare because they get out there and they're talking and they're insecure about it. So you can make a situation in which everyone feels like they know a little bit about it and they are able to find their way in either physically or, or with sound. I mean, there's so many beautiful sounds in Shakespeare that you can tell they're emotional and you can begin to realize that all those things are things we do every day. That substance of language is what our language is made up of. That's one of the things that I always wanted to convey in class, that you can feel like you know what you're doing. And then once that takes over inside of the actor, they want to know more. And then they want mm -hmm. to know more. It, it is infectious. They begin to find their own inspiration within it. Basically, a Shakespeare education gets short shrifted in this country and it gets short shrift everywhere. I've had actors say, it doesn't really have all that stuff in it, does it? And I think, yes, it does. It really does have all that stuff in it. And, and really, I mean, just get your toe wet. You'll see that the water's fine. You'll be able to dive right in and learn so, so much and then feel really an ownership of what you're doing so that you can do your best and shine. And that's what I always wanted to do. And you did that in class. You know, I remember your Lady Macbeth. I still think about Lady uh, Macbeth. You were dazzling. I still want to do it because of that class. Can I just say, someone should do that play for you. You should be doing all kinds of work. When I saw you do this, Intelligent Life, I thought, oh my gosh, she's so beautifully trained. <laughs> Give her big roles. Give her everything. Give it all to her. She should be doing everything. There's, there's big parts out there. I want them to give them to you. <laughs> I'm so glad you got to see that. As I do feel like our training does mean so much. And it's such a thing that, especially doing comedy, people don't know that I have this training. That's such a fun thing to pull out of your pocket. Yeah. Yeah. I want to come back to what you said, Mary Lou, about recognizing that Cecily mostly needed to be given, you didn't say the word gifts, but given gifts as the way to expand her talent. Well, and I'm wondering if you can say something about that or give an example. We were talking about her portrayal of Lady Macbeth. Yes. You know, I was very lucky as a young actress. I went to a, a very special training program in its very, very first inception, those early days of Juilliard. And I know that the things that I was given as a young actress encouraged me 
gave me a jumping off place where the next thing that I attempted to do, I could I could fly higher. I would take more chances. I would feel more emotion so that a little at a time, all those things just gives you incredible, to use a very modern word, agency to try to, to do anything you wanted to do. And I wanted Cecily to have that same opportunity, that feeling that every time she tried something, it would give her more courage to do something else. Because I could see, (laughs) this is all very uh, almost embarrassing to say these things to you, but I could see she had this gift. And I wanted to make sure that she had the chance to use it, the chance to expand it. Something we haven't talked about yet is that I directed her in As You Like It. And that's it has been sort of likened to the female Hamlet because there's such a great range that this character goes through. It has commanded the stage so much of the time. It was a wonderful thing to watch Cecily take that opportunity and run with it so sure-footedly through the forest of Arden. <laughs> it was even just getting that show was... I would say that and doing the Macbeth scene with Matt Bailey were probably the greatest moments I had at CalArts. I know I can speak for everybody I was in class with. We went into that classroom and just Mary Lou talking. Everybody got excited. We were excited to do it. Everybody wanted to turn on stage. It was like as if she's got magic or something. Like she's going to give you that magic for the day. And then you'll get to do the best acting you've ever done in your life. And I think everybody did the best acting they've ever done at some point in Mary Lou's class. To get to experience what your best is, it was just so exciting. And it was, you get to do that in front of your friends. I'm still friends with a lot of people in my class. And I think everybody would say the best they've ever been was in your class. Gosh. Well, and the receiving end, I have to say, watching it was thrilling. When I watch people take chances and go far and and not question themselves and just do it, be up there and do it, it's an astonishing thing to watch. I think I got to see a private audience, some of the best acting anyone would ever (laughs) see, because I always think, wow, am I lucky to be sitting there watching that happen. It's really special to watch it all. Oh, I remember one exercise you gave just as an example of some of the things she would give to us was I was doing one of Henry VIII's wives. Who's the one from Spain? Oh, that's Catherine of Aragon. Catherine, yes. Where she's talking for the court. Yeah. And you had everybody in the class with me who was in the audience and they were all whispering about me. So I was in front of this hostile group who was not accepting me. And she doesn't tell you beforehand that that's what, you know, it's sort of like, let me talk to them and then we'll talk to you first to sort of put me in that space of pleading my case in front of these people. Yeah, you had an obstacle. Yes. That's right. (laughs) It's good when everyone feels they're part of it. They're Hmm. in on the conspiracy of it all. (laughs) One thing that's coming out loud and clear that I don't think would be a surprise to your fan, Cecily, is you keep talking about 
going out there and committing, going out there and going for it fully. I'm sort of a a good old-fashioned SNL student geek of the (laughs) decades. And there are the different types on the show and what people are good at. People are very quick, people who have the precise impressions, people who have the Dana Carvey-like, bigger stretching the impressions. And then you have the Dan Aykroyd, Chris Farley, Will Ferrell-like, fully committed. It's those uh-huh. fully committed people. And I think that Cecily, from the first time I remember seeing the, the desk piece, The Girl at the Party, in your earlier time there, when you come out, we see from you this taking over of a, of a character, of a stage, of such a full commitment. That's the, the joy, I think, this immediate sort of explosion of a character inside of their shell. And so hearing that, This was clear to Mary Lou early on from you, I I think would not be a surprise. How do you conceive of that when you have a character that you are approaching for the first time, whether it's Lady Macbeth or whether it's Janine Pirro? What are you looking for, the essence of it that says, that's how I'm getting in and, and going to go for it? Well, number one, thank you. That was all just incredibly kind, what you just said. And those comparisons are very kind. Mm -hmm. I think like the greatest thing Mary Lou and actually my director, Lee Silverman, that I'm working with now, reminded me so much. Like, I'm glad this all came together in this time that I get to talk to you. I felt like she's very similar to you and how I feel that these are the people that are getting the best performances of my life out of me. Because you can have all this energy and desire to do this, but it's getting someone who the gifts of like specifics is huge and Mm. and really Mm -hmm. knowing what you're doing and to take Shakespeare and go, here's what this word can mean. Here's what this sound can mean. Here's what this breath can mean. Here's what the people around you are doing. What about the wall over there? What does that look like? What does that make you? There's just so many places to pull from. Mm -hmm. Even doing search, there's one scene where I think at one point Lee said, what about the waiter coming in and putting your drink down in the middle of... And it just, those specifics, I think are... The greatest gift. We can all bring our energy and excitement and want to feel these things in front of people. I feel like I have so many tools. And so it makes me a lot more confident. Mm. It's amazing that specificity gives you such freedom, isn't it? Odd? Yeah. People think, oh, if I study too much, it won't be spontaneous. But if it's spontaneous, you never know what you're doing. You need specifics. And the specifics give you the freedom that you need to live in the world and, and react off of things because you have all this information, specifics that are supporting you. That makes me think of, you know, we talk about in the design of teaching environments, there's a naive idea that if you give kids too many constraints, Mm -hmm. that they won't be able to make the kinds of creative choices that allow them to use ideas meaningfully. And in fact, the opposite is true, right? If you say it's whatever you want, it is nearly impossible to take a set of historical ideas or mathematics tools or rules for doing physics and create something interesting. The constraints are what allow for the creative choices. Yes. And that seems quite similar here. You brought up Girl at a Party, and I write that with Colin. And I think this, again, goes back to Shakespeare and words. And if you really learn language and text, then you can start to play with the rules and break the rules. To get a word wrong is funny if you know why it's wrong and what way you're going about it Mm -hmm. to make it wrong. 
the joy that Mary Lou gave us in words, not to see them as obstacles that we just kind of have to get through in order to get to do the sad part in Romeo and Juliet. Or so, you know, be like, oh, well, I'm in love. I know I'm saying all these other words. I mean, how many people don't know that wherefore doesn't mean where are you, Romeo? <laughs> what a different thing to say why. Why are you that name? Yeah. Being specific with language releases an emotional response inside. It's joyous, really, to have that. You can hear it probably just on the Zoom when Mary Lou talks. It was We'd go in the class and just the words that you use, and I remember she'd always say, where are the peeps? And I still <laughs> say peeps now because you called us all <laughs> peeps. But it was, there's so much joy and then there's heartbreak. There's so much in each word. And it was like, you take such delight in your own language and your own words. It's just, you share it. I don't think you could even help it. From the second we walked in, you're sharing with us in that class. And we were like, give me, give me, give me. Because then that creates a collaboration immediately. You'll be with me. You'll be excited by it. That exchange that we had is infectious. And then we'll all play together, you know, and then we'll take it further and further and further, hopefully, you know, into the future. So as we like to, we're going to take a brief pause in our conversation to reflect a bit on what we've heard and what we're going to hear. So for me, it's this. For all of those former theater majors out there, isn't it just great to hear Mary Lou, right? That acting or directing teacher's class that you just can't wait to go to because whatever she has to say is just going to be amazing. And for the non-theater types... I'm glad they get to hear what a teacher like Mary Lou sounds like, what an acting teacher, what a directing teacher really sounds like. But the other point, much less important, I've often argued that it's ridiculous that comic actors are never seriously considered for Oscars. Again, truly not important, but hear me out. It's as though comedy acting isn't really acting, which is stupid. Of course it is. And we see here that it's Cecily's formal theatrical training that allows her to do even the silliest stuff that she does. So I'm right. Erica, what stands out to you? Well, first of all, I could listen to Mary Lou talk all day long. I mean, her voice, her diction, her confidence. No wonder she is the world's best Shakespeare teacher. Now, I got curious about the play that Cecily and Mary Lou talked about at the beginning of our interview, so I looked it up, and good old Wikipedia tells me that Mary Lou played a character called Queen Agravain in the 1996 Broadway revival of Once Upon a Mattress opposite a young Sarah Jessica Parker. And that's where Cecily first saw Mary Lou and started admiring her. As they were talking beyond that first interaction, I started wondering why Mary Lou went into teaching at all since she was experiencing so much success as an artist. And the answer she gives is just phenomenal. I don't want to blow it, but her answer is what we should be telling everyone who wants to be a teacher, that your commitment and your passion for your subject is what should drive you to teaching and that you will learn more about your subject area or your craft from your students than you could ever learn on your own. want to know why you decided to become an educator. How did you wander into the the educator path, especially given how much success you were having as a performer? 
That's a funny question, isn't it? (laughs) When I was in school, I remember my teachers were always telling us that someday, because acting and and everything that has to do with it is um, a craft that needs to be transferred mano a mano. So the best people to give another actor the tools to go forward is an actor or someone who has those tools. And so I always thought that we all would be teaching. And some of us do. I mean, I know that people in my class at Juilliard, some of them have given classes and some of them do workshops from time to time. All the major British actors are all teachers. They all do master classes. I, I remember going to a Fiona Shaw master class once and Helen Mirren teaches and, and Kate Burton is doing an acting class. Anyway, there are lots of professionals who know that they must carry the art form forward. And I had always done a little bit of teaching around the acting company, which I belonged to when I was very, very young. My class became the first group of acting company members. And we did some teaching. And once upon a time, somebody called me on the phone and said, we lost a teacher because they were ill. Would I step in? And I thought, oh, dear. Okay. And I just walked in and I started teaching Shakespeare to a group of young actors Then someone else called me and asked me to do that. And pretty soon I had done it in several different places. And then I was teaching at NYU and in the grad school. And then I was teaching at CalArts. And now I teach one class at Yale. She's the real deal. Uh, So it's just (laughs) one thing after another, after another, after another. I, I think I've gotten better at it as I've gone along. Being in the room with actors, you learn so much that it's astonishing. I feel so privileged sometimes to watch things unfold in front of me and I learn from it and I learn more about my craft watching other people working in front of me, other actors. Yeah. My favorite thing is that you started with the opposite of the adage, those who can't do teach and started by saying, well, I always assumed that those who do the best would make the best teachers, which I think is a really remarkable framing of the relationship between craft and teaching. I love that idea, too. I think that's right. Sometimes people say, well, I want to be a teacher. And I think, well, get a lot of experience so that you have a lot to say. (laughs) Can you think of either of you a spectacular failure that you've had in the classroom? (sighs) Gosh, a spectacular failure. Failure. (laughs) <laughs> such a hard word. I think even the failures can teach us something, though. You know, I mean, it's kind of wonderful that to learn how to act, you have to learn how to risk enough to fail mm. because then you will come back with more courage, I think. Well, and it makes your wins feel even better. Yeah. Right? And isn't that so different from a theory of teaching that when you get something wrong, it's bad? You get an X on your paper. You get a lower grade. Now, sure, in theory, you then go on to learn that thing. I guess that's why you're getting that grade. Mm -hmm. But that's very different from we theater majors who have been up there and it's gone horrifically wrong and you don't fail the monologue, right? That's You like, okay, that happened, this happened, let's work through it, let's find what that happened. Uh, That's, I think, the beauty of what arts education can say to those outside of arts education, like Erica was sort of getting on here. Take failure as a neutral word. 
Yeah. Right? It's just a thing that happens, and then what comes next? Sometimes the failures that happen in class, or at least if it's a, it becomes a moment where we all learn something more about it because we'll take the time and work on it and bring it to some place if you can before you let it go. I would say things not working the way you think that they should work is probably what we would consider a failure. Right. That's right. Planning too much and then having the pie come flying at you. You know, because you've <laughs> I'm always just afraid of falling. I just that's my number one fear every time I'm on stage. Don't fall over. It's like today the day I'm gonna fall. Yeah. As yeah. a person who gets paid to fall for a living, I find that delightful. I love to fall. <laughs> but I wanna be in charge of the fall. That's yeah. Right. yeah. That's right. I also love that, you know, if you asked a kid about their classroom, what are the ways that you could fail? They could tick you off six, seven, eight things right out of the gate, right? And the mm-hmm. idea, Cecily, that you even said, I'm not even really sure what that would look like is such a lovely, one of the reasons that I think we ought to be reframing what good teaching and learning looks like mm-hmm. in terms of the arts is to be able to think of failure as a neutral term, as Alex said, or as something that almost loses its meaning when you're in a learning environment that focuses on creation. As the word success should also be in that group too, because if you're aiming for success in there, you're not aiming for the right thing. Yeah. It's always when you're working in in a scene, you want to work on getting what you want as the character from the other character. And so if you're busy hoping to be successful, you can't do that. Multitasking really doesn't work. And sometimes Mm. that's what gets in the way of actors is that they watch themselves rather than watching the other character for signs of weakening to their will. (laughs) (laughs) Our own head gets in the way. The need for success or need for approbation sometimes gets in the way of having that pure moment of just being in in the scene with your And it's very strange, don't you think, for our specific profession to be an actor? It's like you're supposed to think about all that stuff, but, you know, just for the business side of it. And it's just so antithetical to the art side of it. How do you do that? You know, divide yourself, right? right? It is antithetical. You're supposed to pay attention to how you look and how they're taking you. And you're like, but I can't when I'm actually doing it. All the things that I always loved about acting and why I ever wanted to do it was all the things in the classroom as opposed to the business things. That feeling that we got in that classroom where Mary Lou would give us something and it would finally click. And it was like, you're watching that you've had an effect on somebody or that you've understood this word in a new way. And it's a surprise. All the surprises and the things that you find, the discoveries. Mm -hmm. Those are more exciting than anything else. And those are what I would even call a success. That was also one other thing that's always stuck with me was the discovering versus inventing. That's right. Yeah. Mm. But I'm not going in with this plan of like, here's what I'm going to do with this. Here's how you're going to laugh at this part was discovering, oh, you laughed there or that made me cry. You know, Mm -hmm. the discovery is much Mm. more exciting to me. And I think that discovery, as you were saying, Mary Lou, only happens in collaboration. Yeah. You have to listen to other people, whether that's your partner or the audience. Yes. Otherwise, it's out of sync because you're laughing without a reason. It's self-generated rather than happening right there in the moment. And that's something that as a young actress, I was continually being 
taught by my great teachers that something happening right then and there in the moment is what's truly exciting. In order for that to happen, there's so much trust that has to be there. There's so much plain old allowing and listening and receiving. That's what the conditions are, you know, and that's hard to achieve when we're all being told we must succeed. Ooh, that's tyrannical, I always think, you know. (laughs) Cecily, I was wondering also, you've talked about how some of what you learned in Mary Lou's class has made you a better artist, but I'm wondering if you could reflect on how you've had a chance to pay forward some of the teaching and learning opportunities that, that Mary Lou has described. I guess I think always trying to be a great scene partner, I don't know that I would be a great teacher. I haven't tried it. I feel like Mary Lou, she's able to share these with us and it gets through. It's effective. She's able to communicate it and get it to us. And so that's where I don't know that I could. But I do think in just being a very present scene partner, knowing that your job isn't when you're saying your lines and just giving that to other people. I have felt great about what I do when I've seen other people give great performances opposite me. And then I think, I feel like I'm part of that. And Mm -hmm. I hope that they felt that between us too, that we just both gave each other that gift. Mm. Mm. I love that. That's not the answer I was expecting. And I love it actually for that reason. Are there SNL folks who you've mentored? Does that happen in that space? Or is it much more as equal scene partners? Oh, sure. Well, I think the whole success thing, I like to think the one legacy I can control is behind the scenes and how I've treated people, knowing that it's this business. It's so it's easy to feel terrible about yourself all the time and to constantly be like, where do I fall in the hierarchy today or on the IMDb ratings or something? Or who can tell the narrative and just dismiss my whole career and my whole life in a second in an article or something, you know, and why did those people get to control the narrative? So I think what I like is telling people like, it's okay if you feel bad today and that's normal and you're wonderful and you bring a lot of joy to people and don't forget that. And that's why you're here. And just to be a person that's a friend and a reminder of that and to tell people that was great. Sometimes we just, we don't compliment each other enough. Even when we're thinking it, you just assume someone must feel great because everyone you assume that they must feel the love from everyone and maybe they don't every day. So just reminders to say nice things to people when you feel them. And if you know anything about the history of SNL, that's not always what you hear from past decades. Supportive love is not necessarily a word you get in too many biographies. And then add on the whole internet world now and social media. And it's like, there's just all the worst things you could ever think about yourself someone is saying them online and Mm -hmm. someone has written them to you. You have to find a new way to combat that, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Gosh. All right. Question time. Mary Lou, Mm -hmm. what question would you like to ask Cecily about her career or her experience as an artist or being with you as a student? Gosh. Well, I mentioned earlier that I hope that someone gives you some big roles on the stage. I want to see you do great roles. You've always had that possibility in you. Do you want to do that? Would you do that? Would you say somebody came along and said, I've got a great 
idea. Let me put you in a checkoff. (laughs) Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. I, I think if I felt like excited and inspired by the people also doing it mm-hmm. would be an easy yes. You know, doing the correspondence dinner and doing this show to go after Lily Tomlin and open up that kind of comparison is crazy. But it's sort of <laughs> the things that feel like they would be too scary and overwhelming are the things that I think I want. Those are the best things to say yes to. Mm-hmm. If it feels so big, it's like, imagine how great it would feel to then know that I did that. Mm. To give myself that challenge. Mm. Well, I hope you get it. I hope you get that chance. This isn't really a question and it's sort of selfish, but I would want to, I feel like I've never gotten to act alongside you. Gosh. And that would be. Wouldn't that be something? If so can we something. do that? That's my question. <laughs> can we find something to do. <laughs> yeah. Follow up. What should be the project? What is the project uh, that Arts Educators Save the World is going to produce? Yes. Starring yeah. Cecily Strong and Mary Lou Rosado. I don't know. We'll have to sit there with a bunch of scripts and take a look and see. There's so many. <laughs> the old ones are good. The old stories are darn good. But um, maybe we'll find new stories to tell. You never know. Wow, Alec, you and I have been Saturday Night Live fans our whole lives. I mean. And having a chance to hear from one of its biggest stars. SNL about her education was an incredible time. And I could have listened to Mary Lou speak for the rest of my life. I know. The way she talks, what she talks about, her choice of words, which we heard a lot, is a purposeful way that she lives her life, was such a remarkable hour that I would spend over and over again. And it was instantly magnetic and surprising because listeners prior to this, when Mary Lou came on connected to us, we had a few technical problems. So we were all just sort of mussing our way through some audio. And then she just started answering the first question. And I was like, oh, I I must be in class with her right now. I must listen to this voice. Yeah. She might have even made me a better Shakespearean actor now that I think about it. Yeah, just now. That ship sailed, but, you know, maybe I can catch it on the other (laughs) side. Oh, I thought you meant after those 45 minutes. No, definitely not that. You're now... No. Mm, it would take more than 45 minutes of me listening to a great Shakespearean acting teacher to make me a better Shakespearean actor. I don't know. I think she could do it in like an hour and a half. Erica, I have a question for you. Yes. And it's got three answers. And so I'm going to want to hear these three things Mm -hmm. from you. If you could, could you give me three signs of intelligent life in the universe? Stacey Abrams. One. (laughs) Can I use the same answer twice? No. Oh, gosh, the folks who are upset that Elon Musk wants to buy Twitter. Two things. And, oh, why is it so hard to find signs of intelligent life? (laughs) My 16-year-old. Three things. Those are three things, three signs of intelligent life. According to Erica. Oh, right. And I'm supposed to ask you questions. I'm still thinking about this amazing interview. Alec, if people have just tuned in or if they've been listening to us all along, what are three ways that these now dedicated listeners can be involved with our work and our show? You know, if you have questions, if you have comments, or if you know someone who make a great guest on our show, go ahead and write to us. Write to us for any reason at contact 
at artseducatorspodcast.com. One. You can also use our handy-dandy interview guide to talk to your own mentor about the ways that they've changed your life through the arts. Information about that is at artseducatorspodcast.com slash contact. Two. And if you do that, go ahead and send us your favorite two-minute clip of your interview, and we will do our best to include it on the show. To learn more about that, go to that very same page, artseducatorspodcast.com slash contact. Three things. Onward together. Arts Educators Save the World is hosted by Erica Rosenfeld Halverson and produced and co-hosted by me, Alec Lev. Our executive producer is Doug Matica, and our audio producer is Justin Asher. We are also executive produced by the fantastic group at Story Pirate Studios, Lee Overtree, Benjamin Salka, and Amy Fiore. Original music is by Dan Lipton, and our artwork is by Lyra Evans. Check out our website, designed by Cole Locasio, at www.artseducatorspodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Arts Educators. Yes, somehow that wasn't taken yet. And on Instagram at Arts Educators Podcast. Write to us with your questions and comments at contact at artseducatorspodcast.com. And wherever you're listening, please remember to subscribe, rate, and review. It really helps the show. We are proud to be sponsored in part by the Wallace Foundation, the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and the Gibb Faculty Fellowship. Arts Educators Save the World was created by Erica Rosenfeld Halverson and Alec Lett. <laughs>